It is good to be together uh, this morning. Mr. Jeff made it back uh, from visiting uh, some of the, the missionaries and the families that he uh, works with. It was for a wedding, right, Jeff? Is that right? Yeah. And so he... Uh, he made it back. It's always when you travel out of the country, it's like you finally get to whether it's Denver or wherever you're flying into. It's like, okay, you're back, uh, back on solid ground. Uh, we're glad that you're here with us this morning. We're continuing our uh, our teaching through the Gospel of John. Uh, I think Nathaniel had mentioned early on. He enjoys, I mean, it makes it much easier on the planning side for sure, but he, he enjoys, and I'm going to have to say I, I concur, going through a larger book like this, especially one of the Gospels, because we can see how everything is, woven. depending upon who's writing it, John has a very specific, and I'll talk briefly about that this morning, but a very specific way and reason that he is capturing um, these these things in Jesus life and what he is writing for us but you kind of just see this unfold and when you dig in just a little bit deeper you can see these threads of what's going on on the underside and so that's our hope as we as we go through this book or any of the studies that we do, that, that we see this thread being woven through underneath. Um, I want to say it was Jeff had talked about the significant, or mentioned the significance of like even numbers within the Bible and the number seven. And so that got me like kind of thinking and was looking back. You know, it's like seven is used like over 860 different times throughout, uh, throughout Scripture. Um, right, exactly. And so it's, and John is one of those books where it's almost like a theme of the book. And John was no stranger to the Jewish uh, tradition and, and symbolism. He understood that this number seven was used throughout scripture uh, to res represent this completion uh, and he used the system of sevens three times throughout his book. He gives us actually three miracles, which we're going to be looking at one of those, um, the fifth, today. Now, obviously, there were many more miracles or signs, you know, a, a, something that's happened and then has a teaching point to it, these signs. Um, but John has very specifically given us seven of those um, based on who he's writing to and what he's writing for. He outlines seven major discourses given by Jesus, and then he has seven I am claims within, uh, within that, and it's a book of 21 chapters, these three groups of seven. So it's just it's interesting um, when you kind of take a, take a second and, uh, and dive a little bit deeper into that. And John's goal was... Uh, to lead the reader, especially fellow Hebrews, to the realization that Jesus was, without a doubt, any conceivable doubt, the perfect fulfillment of the law of the prophets. 
Okay, and each of the seven signs that he records play this crucial role in helping us reach this conclusion. Okay, so we've we, we've covered four of these already. We talked in John two. Uh, we looked at turning the water into wine. This first sign of John references um, complements the theme of newness. Uh, found throughout the book's opening chapters, and Jesus turning water into wine reveals him as the source of life and inspires his newly called disciples to put their faith in him as their Messiah. And we had the healing of the nobleman's son in, in John, the end of John 4. Um, and this sign really illustrates Christ's mastery over distance. Right, a nobleman approaches Jesus in Galilee, pleading for him to, to heal his sick son. Jesus sends him away, but as he's sending him away, he says, go, your son will live. Go, your son will live. And before even making it home, the nobleman receives news that his son was completely healed, probably within that same hour when Joseph spoke those words. We looked at the healing uh, of the man at the pool. And this really looks at Jesus wielding this mastery uh, uh, of time. Jesus tells a man who'd been disabled for 38 years, we see in Scripture, to pick up his mat and walk. John tells us the man was instantly well and did indeed walk away. Just last week, we looked in John 6, the, the beginning of this chapter, the feeding of the 5,000, and this actually kind of dovetails with what we're talking about this morning um, because it's immediately after this event. But we see this fourth sign that John uh, captures for us showing Jesus to be the bread of life. And Than will actually talk about that next week because he's in the feeding of the 5,000, he's done the miracle or this sign but he hasn't taught or explained the message behind it. And so it's almost like we're wedged. This, our scripture here in verses 16 through 26 or 22-ish is kind of wedged right in between this sign and explanation um, that John captures for us. But... He feeds this crowd of 5,000 with no more than five barley loaves and two fish, which adds up to seven. Just point that out. And then somehow have, uh, managing to fill 12 baskets of people recognize Jesus as the prophet who is to come into the world. Uh, and ultimately, he alone can nourish and sustain our spiritual life. We've got walking on water we're going to talk about this morning, and in this display of this mastery over nature, Jesus walks across the sea to his terrified disciples in the midst of this storm. And then with the words, it is I, don't be afraid, he, he climbs on board, and in a blink of an eye, the, that, that we're told in Scripture, the boat reached its destination on the other side. We'll ultimately see in John 9, see the healing of a, blind, uh, of a man born blind. And then in John 11, the resurrection of Lazarus, this beautiful foreshadowing of Jesus demonstrating his absolute power over death and in resurrecting his friend um, 
Lazarus. And at that point, that's kind of the miracle that broke the, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. Because at that point, then they, all the religious leaders and the Pharisees began plotting to, to kill. That's right. And so by confirming Jesus' divine nature differently through each sign, John proves or is proving that Christ truly was God in human flesh and in the world, but not of the world. And we've looked at this passage several different times, but just to kind of continue to refresh our, in John 20, 31, he's right. He tells us why he's writing this entire gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John picks out these events, right? These events are meant to, to show more than who Jesus is in himself, but also his, who he is in relation to you and I, to fallen man. John even writes, there are many other things that I could have included. Um, but instead, he's including these very specific things as he records them as evidence of who Jesus is to the people. And so it's almost like this signature, like we would sign a document or, uh, or sign a piece of art to confirm who it's from or, or, or kind of uh, signifying the approval, your approval on that. The, the, these signs were the Father's signature, right, on Jesus' life. It, it, they're the, a signature of God upon his new covenant. And so we're going to be in John 6, starting in uh, verse 14, and we're looking at this fifth sign. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they, would int in, they intend to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or four and a half, three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 22 through 26, because it gives, I got just a couple of thoughts on kind of the people in addition to uh, the disciples. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away uh, alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed there near the place where the people had eat, eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. 
And so the first thing we'll notice about this sign is that it occurs almost directly after the feeding of the 5,000, right? It's kind of wedged in between him explaining the bread of life and the feeding uh, of the people. And so when we look at this, the, the kind of this te- uh, miracle um, sign, we're going to constantly, he hasn't really, again, given the teaching aspect, and so we're really going to look at the test and then this revelation that it gives to us. Um, but there's kind of something missing because several of the Gospels, right, or all, many of the Gospels tell parallel stories because multiple people that were there and witnessed and they tell uh, and capture bits and pieces um, that are unique to that writer. And so if you look at those parallel verses, there's something missing from this account. And it's the count where there's no reference to the fact that Peter got out of the boat and then attempted to join Jesus walking on the water. In Matthew 14, 22 through 36, it, it clearly makes reference to the fact that after Jesus says, it is I, don't be afraid, Peter jumps into the water and has kind of a has a go at it himself. John would have seen this take place, right? He, w- he would have known, uh, and so why didn't he include that in his account of the same story? Well, we have to remember, we're back to the purpose and the reasoning of why he's, he's writing this, right? You have to remember that the sole purpose of John was to write the gospel, that you may believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, um, and that you believing, you may have life in his name. And if John had, in adding that part of the story would takes away from what Jesus is doing, okay? There's not too many sermons or account. If you read that in the Matthew version, most of the commentary, most of the studies, most of the sermons or outline, whatever, focus on Peter, Peter's faith, Peter may taking that first step, Peter second-guessing himself. Like, there's all these different things. Jesus is standing there on top of the water. Peter enters the scene, and it takes away from that, and not in a bad way. Like, as long as we're looking at these separately, and I think that's why John writes that, because the second you add Peter, there's this new dynamic. And it's a good dynamic, and it's a good thing to to dive into. It's just different. And so John's writing specifically doesn't want to take away from what Jesus is doing and what the Jesus is trying to teach, right? It's almost like we just, and I fall into this, like it's almost like we expect Jesus to be walking on water. I mean, he, he's the son of God. He raises people from the dead. I don't, like, of course he's standing on top of the ocean. Like, that makes sense. So John wants to focus this entire account to be kept on what Jesus did and what he's revealing because all these are not just magic show stuff, right? This is, this is purposeful uh, 
this is what's being done, this is why, this is what it should be teaching us. And so what Jesus did and what he revealed about him. And so the, the, it began with this testing, and, and like the other signs, Jesus tests the level of our faith, of their faith prior to the sign, and this time Jesus tests the obedience of his disciples. I mean, remember what they've been doing. Like, they were basically feeding bread and fish to a small football stadium packed full of people, handing it out, bringing it back, cleaning it up. Like, it's like pretty big catering job, right? And so they have this huge task that they've completed and Jesus retreats up a mountain and sends his disciples to go across the Sea of Galilee. It doesn't appear to be such a, you know, a great task at first, but several of them are fishermen. They may be accustomed to that. They're rowing on their own strength. But they are in a location, and that's what Scripture tells us. Due to the geography of where they're at, it's not uncommon for storm heads to come rolling through there and cause some pretty choppy weather and storms. So they're going it on their own strength. They would I'm sure they were wondering, like, where's Jesus? We were just together. Like, should we wait on him? He's up on this hillside. Ah. Uh, we only have one boat, you know. Uh, but they were obedient. Jesus' command, he told them, I think a couple of the other uh, parallels was like sternly told them to, uh, to go. And so uh, they went. And now it's night, and the sea had begun to get rough, and the wind was blowing. And at this point, the disciples have rowed three and a half miles. I don't know how long that takes. I know... Uh, how I've been in a rowboat just trying to get like from point A to point B and it's not the prettiest thing in the world so I can't imagine in like C to try and row three and a half miles um, the winds against them they're starting to get tired they were already tired uh, wet miserable all these human attributes um, and on top of all of that they're like oh a ghost Awesome. And so they see something walking towards them on the water. And when you read the account in the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, Jesus rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith. But, man, they're being obedient. They're like, they're in a storm and they're rowing. Like, they pass that test in my book, right? Like, I, and disciples had been struggling. And I'm sure in their mind, God, are we even doing the right thing? I, I, couple more minutes, we're going to turn back. I mean, you can play out all these different things that would be in my head. Um, struggling against the circumstance that they found themselves in. Have you? I mean, have you felt like that? Not that you're physically rowing a boat in the ocean, but like the things that are happening in your life are 
can you relate, right? I have. And when it all seems to get too much, that's the point where Jesus appears. When it seems to be overwhelming, when it seems to be against the wall, that's when Jesus appears. The the disciples are terrified at the sight of Jesus appearing in the way that he does. As a matter of fact, whenever, a lot of times when Jesus appears in his miraculous power, often not the way people expect it, and they are terrified, we see in Scripture. The disciples did, and they let Jesus into the boat. I mean, totally different story, right? If they hadn't recognized Jesus and not let him into the boat or just, like, started rowing the other direction from this, like, silhouetted outline in the distance. But they let him in, and we read that they immediately reached the other side. So the disciples are being obedient, and Jesus comes in power and takes them across. And the crowd who had been fed by Jesus, however, doesn't even notice at first that he's even gone from around them. They only notice when they become hungry again. Quite different from the disciples, right? Jesus' absence from the boat would have been only very noticeable. And they were struggling to be obedient but on their own power. So what was the difference between the disciples and the crowd? Well, neither of them had Jesus. The difference was Jesus' absence was noticed by the disciples, but they were still being obedient to his word. The crowd, on the other hand, just wanted to see miracles. They wanted to see what they could get from him. We see the same two attitudes towards the the power and presence of Jesus found in almost every church. Every church. Those who are struggling in their own strength, trying their best to be obedient to God's word. They're they're trying at home, at church, at work to live their lives faithfully to God's word and and are active uh, in obedience to him. Like the disciples, they can find themselves struggling, struggling, painfully aware that they lack the real power and presence of God they need in their lives. And then there's the others who are maybe like the crowd. Fill in the seats. Want to see Jesus to come in power. But really for their own benefit. They don't even really notice the absence of the power until they need that next miracle. And so, church, I, I, I really believe we, we need to examine our hearts to know what attitudes we have on this. I believe this church, our community, is, is on the verge of seeing God doing amazing things. But we need to realize what... When Jesus comes in, in revival and bringing, he doesn't just come to do the miraculous, right? He, he also gives this supernatural ability to those who are already struggling in their circumstance, but are being obedient to his word. The disciples were rowing 
and rowing and rowing. And Jesus met them where they were at. If you are like the disciples in that boat, he, he comes to complete in power what you've been faithfully trying to do in your own strength. And so then there's this revelation that comes with this sign. What was Jesus revealing about himself through this miracle, this sign? Was it just that he had power to do miracles? Like he can be the most buoyant something could be? <laughs> like, I, was it just that he had the power? Like, if the nearest that I've, okay, here's some. The nearest that I have ever got to walking on water like I saw this kid and you know when you like dare junior high kids or like you know not that I adult was it would have been when I was younger so junior high kids daring other kids to do stuff they still use them some but like have they have that bubble wrap plastic that they put on pools not like the super duper covers now like instead of doing a fence you'll do like a pool cover and you can literally walk out on though but they're made to support if a kid was but these were like the bubble wrap kind of I guess like a pool heater like you can put them on top but they are just like foam laid on top of the water but it was like I bet you can't run across that I bet I bet you can't run across that, and there's not too terribly many junior high kids that would at least be like, that's a good question, let's see if it works. Uh, and it, like it did at first, horribly dangerous, horribly dangerous, but it like, it did at work, but at first, but it's like, the second you were not in, like, cartoon feet flying mode, you were going down. So I guess I, guess I technically can testify that it's impossible to walk on water is what I'm getting at. And this miracle, however, like the others mentioned in John's book, was so much more than just Jesus doing the impossible. John doesn't even mention the fact that Jesus quieted the wind and the waves. So what does this reveal about who Jesus was and what he came to do. Well, the answer to that, we've got to briefly hit the Old Testament. Because there's a connecting point here between Moses, between Joshua, between Elijah, between Elisha. When the mantle passed, from the teacher to the student, God's anointing was in each case demonstrated on that person by the means of this miraculously crossing 
of water. Okay, we all know the people recognized that God's hand was upon Moses, right? When, it, when the Lord led them through the Red Sea, when they were brought out of Egypt, when Moses had died, the people then knew that the mantle had passed over to Joshua. When he performed a miracle by crossing the Jordan River on dry land while it was in full flood. Okay, this is the point that the people knew that the Lord's hand was upon Joshua. Joshua 4, 14. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him all the days of his life, just as they had revered Moses. The same miracle was repeated when the baton went from Elijah to Elisha. Okay, this is what happens on the day that Elijah is about to be taken off. 2 Kings 2, 8 through 15, Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses, uh, fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more, and then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart. He picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah, went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan, and then he took the cloak that he had fallen from him and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets of Jer from Jericho who were watching said the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And it's again this same miracle that confirms to the people that this is the anointed man of God that they should be following. Why had this miracle been used time and time again to show that God's anointing was upon that person? I I think it goes back, you know, in reading and looking at it, I think it goes back to the great flood. I think it goes back to it, it, this great water that had caused the destruction of nearly all of humanity. And God shows that his anointing is upon a person by giving them power over the very thing which just brought judgment to the earth. He gave Noah power over the flood in building the ark. In the same way here, we see Jesus saving his disciples from this deadly storm. Jesus reveals himself as the person who will take his place out of judgment. Okay, Jesus makes reference to the end times being like the days of Noah, in Luke 17, 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. And so through this miracle, Jesus reveals himself to have the power of judgment. And those who welcome Jesus into the boat 
will be like the disciples, and immediately they'll reach their destination. You catching that? So I want to encourage you. If you're feeling like the disciples right now, if you're trying to be obedient to God, but, but you feel that you're rowing against the wind, the nights come, you're, you're starting to feel disillusioned. I believe that there are many of us who are feeling like that. And not just in this building this morning, throughout our community. Whether they step foot in a church, they feel that. You're feeling tired, you're feeling exhausted. I want you to encourage you that it's not long before if you are a believer of Christ that he will empower you. We just have to keep rowing in the direction that he has sent us. And if the disciples have been rowing to the wrong port, Jesus may not have even walked out to them. Keep rowing in the direction he sent you. He will be joining you in that boat. So this has like got some bonus lessons with it. Because <laughs> uh, you can't hardly talk about this. I mean, we want to focus on the miracle and, and the reason of the miracle in Jesus, but then when you talk about the storm and stuff like that, there's like bonus footage that you get to go with it. So it's like, if you follow Jesus, there will be storms, okay? If you follow Jesus, there will be storms. And something that when a person trusts Christ, it's like, hallelujah, now nothing bad can happen to me, okay? That, that, uh, no more storms, okay? It's not just settle down. That's not how it works. It's like not a get out a storm free card. If you haven't heard this, I'm the bearer of the bad news that most likely the trials may intensify now that you've stood up for Christ. There will be storms, there will be conflict in our lives. What is true is that when you follow Jesus, you have the love and care of one who is able to silence the storms. And even if the storm winds continue to blow, Jesus doesn't leave you there to drown in this overwhelming flood, okay? Jesus never denies the reality of the storm. That's some bonus footage. We, he knows the danger full well, right? He was up at a bandit. He was up on the hill, up on the mountainside in prayer. He knew what was going on down below and the struggle of his disciples. He sees our dangers. He knows our trials. He knows when our ship is close to sinking. Sometimes the purpose of the storm is to get you to see that the Lord is God and that he alone is the master of the storm testing of our faith and the way you pass that test is you grow and you mature in your faith and you see that Jesus is bigger than any of your other storms 
And then the bonus bonus is the boat can represent the church. This sign, think about it. This sign was accom- accomplished only in the sight of believers. Like the only people that saw Jesus walk on water right then, they were all his disciples, his followers in the boat with him. No one else saw it. And so it, the church could be this boat sailing in the storm of society. And we know society is constantly attacking and pressure from all sides to conform to the morals of the world, not of Scripture. And so if Christ is not in the church, that boat's going to sink. Okay, if we, if we forget the person of Jesus in our worship, in our teaching, fear and division and hatred will sink that boat. It'll sink our boat. If we miss it, it will sink someone else's boat if they're missing it. And so when the storms of life produce waves that wash over the sides, ah, many will sink into the depths of despair, but Jesus, Jesus can walk on water, right? Let's pray. Father, we continually pray here at Harvest that that you be that guiding light, that you be that guiding hand. We want you to be glorified. We want you to be lifted up. We don't do our hope and prayer is that we don't do anything inside or outside of this building that brings glory to ourselves, but that we do exercise the gifts and talents that you have given us so that it may be a reflection of you. And so this morning, we just are just confirmed in Scripture as we see that we want you to be first. And so, God, we pray to that end. Don't ever let this be in the church be about anything but you. And in, in, I pray in our lives that they wouldn't be anything except about you. And so, Lord, just continue to, to soften our hearts, be, continue to peel back the layers, allow us to soak in whether we're just rowing this ship against what seems to be a brick wall. If we place our faith in you, we know that you are there with us. So, God, I just pray that we would be obedient and just continue in the direction that you have set us. We pray these things in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen.